Thin Air is an independently created podcast by Daniel Calderon and Jordan Sims. Thin Air is supported in part by our donors at patreon.com slash thinairpodcast. Through our Patreon, donors receive rewards for their support, including Patreon-exclusive bonus episodes, ad-free versions of regular episodes, and stickers for as little as $1 a month. So if you value what we do and you want to support us, consider checking us out at patreon.com slash thinairpodcast. We also wanted to give you a heads up about our upcoming episode release schedule going into the holidays and new year. After this episode, we'll be back in two weeks for another episode. That's December 11th. And then we'll have another episode one week after that on December 19th. Then we'll take a short break for the holiday season and return with new episodes at the end of January. We want to thank HelloFresh.com for supporting Thin Air. Receive $30 off your first week of deliveries when you go to HelloFresh.com and use the offer code THINAIR30. Around 2 a.m. on November 21, 2006, 19-year-old Jesse Ross was at a party at the Sheraton Hotel and Towers in downtown Chicago. Jesse was visiting Chicago to attend a model United Nations conference with his classmates from the University of Kansas. While at the party, Jesse is alerted that there is going to be an emergency UN meeting in the hotel's second basement. What the emergency meeting is, uh, in Model UN, they have an emergency simulation for those who are on the Security Council. Jesse was a Security Council member, specifically what's called the Historical Security Council, which is where um, several teams get together and they have to work through a crisis from history. My name is Brian Rose. I am a documentary filmmaker out of Kansas City, Missouri, and I've been working on a film about the disappearance of Jesse Ross since uh, 2013. You know, so it's the challenge is, is, you know, you have to kind of adopt the mindset of the country you represent at that particular time um, for the simulation. And you have a time limit. The meeting goes roughly from 2 a.m. till dawn. You know, you have to uh, come up with a resolution or something. that's, that's kind of the goal of this emergency meeting. So he gets the notice. Uh, it's kind of a surprise. You don't know when it's going to come, but he gets notified, hey, the meeting is happening. Approximately 30 minutes into this emergency meeting, Jesse leans over to his teammate, hotel roommate, and longtime friend, Ralph Parker, and whispers something into his ear. His teammate does not hear what he says but his teammate figured what he was saying was that he was going to be going back to the hotel they were staying at because they had previously talked about, well, I may not be there the whole time uh, and you only need one representative there. And so that's kind of what he figured his intent was. After he whispers whatever he whispers to his teammate, he is seen getting up, uh, walks out, not the main entrance to this meeting room, but he walks out a little used rear entrance that goes out into uh, a service passageway. And that is the last time um, anyone has seen or heard from Jesse Ross. Uh, His phone, his cell phone uh, goes dead roughly a half an hour after that, around 3 a.m. 
Uh, he's last seen around 2.30 to 2.45. That's it. He is gone. Around six in the morning, the emergency meeting comes to an end, and Ralph returns to the hotel room he shared with Jesse, a good 10 or 15 minute walk from the Sheraton Hotel and Towers where the model UN emergency meeting was taking place. When Ralph enters the room, he sees what he believes to be Jesse Ross sleeping in the next bed over. When Ralph wakes up the next morning, around 10 a.m., he realizes that what he believed to be Jesse was actually a pile of his clothes that he had left scattered on his bed. Ralph quickly notifies the university sponsors of Jesse's absence, but no one is seriously concerned that Jesse is actually missing at this point. The assumption is that Jesse must have slept in someone else's hotel room or is already with other students and that he will surely return before 1 p.m. when all the University of Kansas students were scheduled to return home to Missouri. When 1 p.m. came and went with no sign of Jesse, the students and their sponsors knew they had a larger, more serious issue on their hands. One of the sponsors notified the police and then Jesse's parents. I worked nights, so I was uh, sleeping, I don't know, about 2 or 3 o'clock in the afternoon, I think, and the phone rang, and I woke up, I answered the phone, and someone there told me they were one of the sponsors for Jesse's group. Uh, They currently weren't sure of Jesse's location and that they would let us know whenever they knew for sure and they would get back to us. My name is Donald. A. Ross, and I'm Jesse's father. I got up then and kind of wandered around. I was a bit in shock and not sure what to do. It gets pretty fuzzy that first day. It's just, I don't know, it's one of those things that we were just totally unable to function. So at some point, I think they called back and they informed me then that Jesse was nowhere to be found, that one of the sponsors would be bringing us Jesse things, would be coming back, and the other sponsor would be staying there and working with police filling out a missing persons report. So basically that's uh, when it all began. With Jesse's parents back home in Missouri, nearly eight hours away from Chicago, all they could do was wait for news about their missing son. The same day Jesse goes missing, the conference ends and all the attendees begin leaving. To complicate issues, it was only a few days before Thanksgiving, so many of the students in attendance returned home for the holiday weekend instead of going back to their respective colleges basically a, uh, a policeman's worst nightmare uh, in terms of a missing persons case where you have someone who's been missing for over 12 hours before it even gets reported. He's at an event with roughly 1,000 to 1,200 other students, nearly all of whom are from out of town, and he disappears early morning on the last day of the event. So when he, they finally notice he's missing and file a report, the event is wrapped up. People are leaving. And not only are they leaving, they're leaving to go home for Thanksgiving. 
you have a situation where like the potential witnesses were literally scattered across the continental U.S. And these uh, police officers weren't able to get a hold of people uh, for really a week after when they start returning back from Thanksgiving. Even in that space of time, people can start to forget. There are a lot of people, I mean, I think the, the really the sad irony is, you know, there could be someone out there who might have a crucial piece of information that doesn't even realize it because they don't ever, they never knew that this person disappeared. But if they went back to, you know, their hometown in California or wherever, uh, never saw any news follow-ups, were never reached out to by anybody, the person out there that could hold the key to this case might not even know it. I often wonder about this idea when I work on an episode. How solvable some of these cases might be if only the right person knew they possessed that key piece of information. In this case, that would be any person in Chicago, but more specifically, someone attending the Model UN conference who may have seen or even spoken to Jesse that night. These potential witnesses are important because it turns out that where Jesse went after leaving through those rear doors could make all the difference in possibly figuring out what happened to him. That's because the current theory adopted by officials is that Jesse left the hotel that night and fell into the Chicago River. On this episode of Thin Air, we examine the case of Jesse Ross and the theories regarding his disappearance. I've divided this story into two parts. Part one is about what we do know, Jesse's movements, the days and night leading up to his disappearance. And part two is about what we don't know, what could have happened to Jesse after he left, and how likely is it that he ended up in the Chicago River as authorities posit. Join us for episode 33, The Mysterious Disappearance of Jesse Ross. Well, he, of course, he liked the radio station. He liked the music. My name is Donald A. Ross, and I'm Jesse's father. He loves sports. He uh, was a runner, mainly uh, track and field and cross country, that type of stuff. All around, your basic, I guess, college student, and he, he was pledging a fraternity. He was in that. It just had so many things going on that he was interested in. And his personality was just, uh, his humor was a little bit over the edge. He, big time practical joker. And, and of course, pledging that fraternity, I have some, a feeling there's probably some things we don't want to know that he was probably up to. But One of those things, but nothing atypical for a college student, was drinking. In fact, Jesse's level of intoxication on the night of his disappearance is the crux of the theory that he fell into the Chicago River. In order to get a better picture of Jesse's state of mind that night and early morning, we have to back up to a few days earlier when he departs from his home in Missouri with his University of Kansas classmates in a shuttle to Chicago. 2005, they had this same uh, Model UN uh, conference 
in Chicago. He went up that year, and then this year he was going again. He His major uh, was communication. Naturally, he was really uh, into the UN thing. He was the politics and stuff. I think it intrigued him, and he, he really liked it. But he also, from what we heard, he was interested in the music scene in Chicago and maybe uh, getting looking for future employment up there in, in some capacity. And so uh, he was excited about Chicago and he was excited about the, the uh, UN. He was not just using it as a chance to go up to Chicago and party or something. He was there for the convention and very much involved in it. So he was excited. Jesse, an aspiring DJ, brought along a few of his demo discs hoping to distribute them amongst the Chicago music scene. They were brought with him because uh, he, uh, on the, they rode in vans, uh, you know, an eight-hour van ride up to, uh, up to Chicago, and he rode in the same van that the chaperone was driving. And he specifically recalled Jesse playing uh, this demo disc uh, for them because he was doing a lot of really interesting stuff, mashing different genres like country and rap or, you know, uh, and making kind of humorous um, combinations of songs that they all got a real kick out of. And he said at that time that you know, Jesse had told him that, yeah, he was hoping to hand them out because he would uh, one day like to work in Chicago. The first few days of the conference went by as expected. No unusual behavior by Jesse is reported by anyone. Brian was able to get access to the original itinerary and speak to multiple eyewitnesses, allowing him to retrace Jesse's last steps with a high degree of accuracy. Between 8 and 9 o'clock, all the team members would have attended uh, an evening session, uh, which Jesse was seen at uh, by several teammates. Then a number of them traveled back to the hotel they were staying at. Uh, this is one of the aspects of the story that has really gotten confusing to a lot of people is, you know, this event was taking place at a hotel right along the Chicago River. It was once called the Sheraton Hotel and Towers. Now it's called the Sheraton Grand. They've, it's changed names. So it was a Sheraton branded hotel, a big conference center. But they did not have enough rooms allocated to host everybody there. So Jesse's team had to stay about a half mile northwest. He was at a Sheraton, but a different one called the Four Points, which itself has changed owners twice since then. So it's, it's a, it really gets confusing. He's at a different hotel. So he and his classmates walk back to that hotel, stop to eat, uh, possibly, I don't can't say that for sure, uh, and they just hang out in their respective rooms. There is drinking going on at this time. Uh, you know, this was a group of mostly underage students, but a few of them, uh, the students were old enough uh, to buy alcohol, and they apparently bought alcohol for everybody. So they've been drinking. Then what happened was uh, that night, from roughly midnight to 2 a.m., there was going to be a sponsored dance back at the conference hotel the Sheraton Hotel and Towers. Initially, no one was going to go to this dance because they balked at the idea of, you know, going back out in the cold weather to this dance. And so their chaperone figured his job was done reasonably. And so he got a late dinner and he retired for the evening. Uh, well, in the interim, all the students changed their minds. And so they start going piecemeal, you know, in 
couples or singly back over to the, the conference hotel for this dance. Jesse is uh, photographed on a security camera at the Sheraton Four Points where they were staying, leaving at oh, just shortly after midnight. And he's seen uh, carrying like a bottle of uh, Gatorade with him, which eyewitnesses testifying that that was really contained alcohol to disguise what he was drinking. Uh, so he leaves on his own, gets to the conference hotel. Uh, he's photographed entering the hotel 10 to 15 minutes later, which is just a, right on when it should have been. I've walked the route, you know, a dozen times, and that's just about what it would have taken. So he didn't stop anywhere, went straight to the hotel goes in and goes to the dance. Uh, he's photographed at the dance by a classmate. And those are the last photos that uh, I have of Jesse. Around 1.30 to 1.45, he goes up to the eighth floor to a room party being hosted by uh, another team uh, from Kansas. They'd booked a whole suite as kind of a hospitality room. There was alcohol being served there. He may have consumed more at that time. The sources disagree on that. And then around uh, 2 to 2.15, he gets notified that an emergency meeting is going to be taking place. This is how Jesse ends up in that conference room in the second basement with Ralph. Most likely intoxicated, however, not drunk enough for it to be too noticeable by others in attendance. So he goes down 10 floors uh, into the second basement level. You know, to the meeting room where it's being held, arrives, the people see him walk in. People disagree about his state of intoxication. Uh, I have one witness who says he seemed very intoxicated. Several other witnesses, however, didn't think he seemed drunk at all. He just seemed tired, which was understandable at being two in the morning. 30 minutes into the emergency meeting, Jesse leans over to his teammate and one of his best friends from high school, Ralph Parker, and whisper something indiscernible to him. Ralph told us that he regrettably, it was very noisy and everything, and Jesse said something, but Ralph uh, thought that this probably wasn't important and he didn't want to make a big deal, so he just kind of nodded like he had heard Jesse. And actually didn't hear what he said. So, uh, and, um, you know, later thought he kind of wishes that he had had Jesse repeated, and maybe we would know something about where he was going. Last year, I, a couple of years ago, I, anyway, Ralph Parker was involved in a car accident and killed, so it was kind of one of our major sources of information that's no longer available. Tragically, Ralph Parker died in 2010, four years after Jesse disappeared. When he lost control of his car on the freeway around 3.30 in the morning and ended up in a concrete embankment, Ralph was taken to the hospital where he was pronounced dead. Ralph died in September of 2010, uh, Ralph uh, being the teammate who last spoke to and last saw Jesse. He died in 2010. I started the case in 2013. However, I was fortunate in that the uh, private investigator who has been working the case since 2007 did interview Ralph on one occasion. So I do have um, you know, some uh, archival audio, which um, was, was truly fortunate because uh, he's, he's, he's a critical source. While most of the interview between the private investigator working on Jesse's case and Ralph was recorded for documentation and not for radio broadcast, much of it is hard to hear or listen to. 
Brian describes to me one point someone walking in during the interview and using a vending machine in the background. However, Brian was able to isolate some of the audio from the interview with Ralph. Here are, in Ralph's own words, him describing the last time he saw Jesse. When we sat down, he, said, he whispered something to me and I couldn't hear it. And then, um, and he ended up walking out at about 2.50. I assumed he was going to go back wherever he was, upstairs, or maybe back to the hotel to sleep. And that's the last guy I saw of him. For more of this interview between the private investigator and Ralph Parker, be sure to check out Brian Rose's documentary film, When I Last Saw Jesse, when it's officially released. More information about that at the end of this episode. So that was part one of our story. What we do know about the days leading up to and the night of Jesse's disappearance. When we return from the break, we'll examine some of the leading theories about what could have happened to Jesse after he left with no one knowing where he was going, potentially intoxicated and in an unfamiliar city. Join us after this short break. Thin Air Podcast has teamed up with HelloFresh and they are offering everyone in our audience $30 off your first week of deliveries when you go to HelloFresh.com and use the offer code THINAIR30. That's THINAIR30. Everything from HelloFresh comes pre-measured in labeled meal kits so you know exactly which ingredients go with which recipe. HelloFresh offers a wide variety of chef-curated recipes, and the plans to choose from consist of classic, veggie, and family. I've really enjoyed the meals HelloFresh sent me. I received my insulated box of ingredients, which included, if I may add, an adorable HelloFresh apron to wear while I prepare my meals. My favorite meal this week was the balsamic fig chicken, which included chicken breast covered in delicious fig glaze, roasted sweet potatoes, and fresh salad greens. HelloFresh makes cooking easy because recipes only take around 30 minutes to make, and a lot of them are one-pot recipes for easy cooking and cleanup. HelloFresh allows you to try things you never would have thought of cooking on your own. For example, I would have never imagined to pair a fig balsamic glaze with my chicken, but it was delicious. To experience HelloFresh for yourself, and trust me, you want to experience it, go to HelloFresh.com and use the promo code THINAIR30 to get $30 off your first week of deliveries. Links to this offer can be found on our website and social media. Before the break, we discussed what was known about Jesse's case, tracking as closely as we could his movements up until his disappearance. But what happens after he leaves the meeting that morning is highly debated amongst authorities, family members, and witnesses alike. For part two, 
I want to focus on what we don't know, specifically by examining the four main theories about what happened to Jesse Ross. Before we can begin to examine the theories, I wanted to have a better idea of what Jesse would have encountered immediately after exiting the conference room through the rear doors. Brian, as part of his film, has gone to investigate where these doors lead. After he whispers whatever he whispers to his teammate, he is seen getting up, uh, walks out, not the main entrance to this meeting room, but he walks out a little-used rear entrance that goes out into uh, a service passageway. If you go back there, and you know I've explored this this area, it's still you know it's it's never locked. It's all open. Um, uh, it basically you got back there. It's you know it's um, a uh, I mean literally that. It's just a service area where you know you've got boxes and spare chairs stashed there, and doors uh, you know to other other parts of the hotel, uh, as well as an emergency uh, stairwell uh, that goes up. Uh, you know, a couple of flights and exits out onto uh, the the main entrance of the hotel via um, a disguised door. It's it's an exit only. And what is the what is very unusual? You know, the prevailing theory um, put forth by the police investigators, um, you know, to a degree, re- understandable. You know, since Jesse had been drinking, and you know, this is something that's happened before, where you know, people come to Chicago, they had too much to drink, uh, they go out and, you know, through misfortune, they fall into the river. It's has happened before. That w- That's what they think happened in this case. What's important to note here is that these rear doors did not lead directly to the Chicago River, but instead into a series of confusing hallways and stairwells. With this in mind, let's start by examining the prevailing theory held by authorities. That Jesse, drunk and disoriented, somehow found his way to the river and fell in. You know, there's basically four theories. Uh, You know, the first theory is the one the police believe, which is that, you know, he had too much to drink somehow or another, you know, disregarding his activities and all. He wound up on water's edge, fell in and just has not, uh, his body has just eluded uh, multiple searches of the river which I suppose could be a possibility. He could, could, uh, could still be down there somewhere. One of the reasons this theory is so popular is because Chicago natives have, unfortunately, heard this story many times before. In 2014, there's the story of a man who accidentally slipped into the Chicago River after trying to retrieve a dropped cell phone. A woman tried to rescue him and jumped in to help. Another man jumped in to try to rescue the other two. The first man to fall in died. The second man was taken to the hospital in critical condition. And the woman hadn't been recovered at the time of the reporting, but was presumed to be dead. And this is just one incident, albeit extreme, of many that followed this similar pattern. People straying too close to a river that doesn't appear to be as dangerous and deadly as it really is. As plausible as a situation this is, it would involve Jesse having to make his way to the Chicago River, which, given the exit he took to leave the building, would have been much more complicated than it sounds. 
the problem with that is obviously it doesn't really help uh, for the purpose of a podcast, but if you could look on a map of the hotel, it's a really circuitous route from where that meeting room is to get out onto the, the river walk. It's the river esplanade that uh, runs along the um, south side of the hotel. If you exit this room, you have to go down one hallway and then you make a right down another hallway, you have to make another right. Then you have to go down a set of escalators. Then it takes you out to that to that main exit way. If the problem is, is you know, if that uh, was Jesse's intention, why didn't he go out the 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 most obvious, the most direct route, which was the main entrance doors? That was a much shorter route, and Jesse was seated right by those doors. So. That's, that's the big question, you know, is uh, Jesse's actions would indicate to me that he was not headed toward the river for any reason. He was exiting with the intent of, you know, going back to his hotel, which was in the direction opposite the river. Now, of course, the, the big variable that, you know, is impossible to account for is, you know, the, the degree to which he was inebriated and the degree to which that may have impacted his cognition, because I've... I've seen videos of what people do when they're drunk. People do very strange uh, things. While leaving through these specific doors might suggest that Jesse was not headed towards the river, there is no evidence, video or otherwise, which proves that Jesse was near the river. In fact, there's no evidence at all to prove that he even left the hotel. However, if we assume for the sake of this theory that Jesse did end up in this Chicago River, how likely is it that his body would be found? Is it physically possible for his body to have been swept out into Lake Michigan, never to be found? Has I mean, has the river ever been searched by police or by anyone? Yeah, they uh, they had divers and then they had that sonar and they went down, I guess, behind the hotel where he had. Uh, disappeared and they went there in the river and went with the divers and the sonar. I came recently, uh, someone told us that, that they had gotten some new type of sonar and that they had gone back and done some more, uh, searching in there, which to me, they found absolutely nothing, no article of clothing, no cell phone, uh, nothing, to indicate possibility of a body in there. To me, that, that just more and more indicates to me he's not in that river where he ever was. So I I think the police like the river theory because it, it frees them up. They're not responsible for people who go in the river. You know, that's just unfortunate. Uh, the police from the beginning focused on the river, which, again, given what they knew at the time, I think was a reasonable thing to do. They searched, you know, that whole river, you know, up and down, and they still do periodically, and they never found Jesse. I've got witnesses who spoke with police, the lead investigators, and the investigators were all confident. They said, you know, if he fell in this river, we're going to find him because the current is such that when a body goes into the water, it tends to sink right down and they always find the person within 10 or 15 feet of the entry point. One of the explanations for why Jesse's body hasn't been found is that it must have been swept out into Lake Michigan. 
The hotel, after all, is located near the mouth of the Chicago River where it flows into Lake Michigan. However, the river's design complicates this issue. This river uh, was engineered in the late 19th and early 20th century. What was happening was, you know, typical 19th century urban planning. The city's sewage was being basically dumped into the Chicago River, which was going out into Lake Michigan, which was where the city was drawing its drinking water from. You know, that's a recipe for cholera and typhoid outbreaks. So what they did was they engineered a series of locks to reverse the flow of that river. So it flows now in the opposite direction, away from Lake Michigan. Uh, but what happened was uh, then you had several states, uh, Wisconsin uh, being one of them, who filed a lawsuit against the city, arguing that the city was going to uh, drain Lake Michigan because they had reversed the flow and they were emptying out the lake. You know, a little, little bit uh, absurd, I think, but the response to this was that they installed a set of double, a set of locks, basically two gates to manage the flow at the mouth of the uh, main branch of the Chicago River where it empties out into Lake Michigan, which this is all roughly a half a mile east of um, where the hotel is at. So as a result of these gates, there is very little flow, and what flow there is indeed goes in the, um, the opposite direction. The only time there is flow going out to Lake Michigan is when they have like a flooding event, Bat water backing up, they have to open those gates, otherwise it's gonna back up and flood the city. This means that if Jesse's body was to be swept out of the river, then both of these gates would have had to be open in order to create a flow into Lake Michigan. Police checked the gate reports from the morning of Jesse's disappearance and used the information to corroborate their theory. So what the police concluded, you know, they pulled uh, the log reports from that day and they found that, um, you know, roughly uh, a little before seven in the morning, so, you know, about three to four hours after Jesse was last seen, there was a water taxi that went out the locks onto Lake Michigan. It was heading out to be basically put, in, put into mothballs for the season. So they said, aha, when those gates must have been opened, the flow went out to Lake Michigan and Jesse's body must have been carried out into Lake Michigan. And so their official line has been, we're not going to find his body. It's out in the lake. He's gone. Brian has been meticulous in his research and knew that he needed to speak with someone familiar with this specific system of locks and gates in the Chicago River. And what Brian discovered is a fundamental misunderstanding of what happened with the gates that morning. I interviewed the actual lock operator who has, I mean, just impeccable credentials. This guy has spent his whole career on the waters. He was actually um, an inspector, uh, would inspect ships you know, for safety. You know, he's, he's been to dozens of countries around the world and he's worked as the lock operator. Uh, for several years now. He is a naval engineer. He knows his stuff. And when I laid out this theory and all, and he provided me with all the documentation, all the same logs that the police got access to, he was uh, pretty incredulous because he said that, well, the only time you would have flow like that is when both gates are open at the same time in, in a flooding event. Uh, but in this case, 
you know, we would have just opened one gate to allow the boat in and then close that gate, uh, let the water level subside, uh, and then we open the next gate and the, the, uh, the boat can go out onto the lake. So both gates were not open. The, there was, would have been no change in the flow, no opportunity for um, a body to be carried because there was no change there and there were never both gates would have never been opened. Uh, and he just says outright that, you know, that, that theory does not work based on like his knowledge and experience on that lake. So you have kind of this crucial explanation for why Jesse's body was never found and why the police have been rather intransigent about, you know, looking at other alternatives, why they've kind of adopted this conclusion. But it's founded upon a basic misunderstanding of how that uh, river flows and how those locks operate. So, the river theory, which seems plausible, requires two unlikely yet perhaps slightly possible premises. One, that Jesse somehow made his way through the maze of corridors and escalators to the rear of the Sheraton Hotel and Towers where the Chicago River was located. Two, that somehow his body, wallet, and cell phone have all managed to evade recovery from a river in which recovery attempts are almost always successful. Despite this, it is important to keep in mind that this theory isn't entirely off the table. Both of these premises are possible. In fact, the family still receives notifications when bodies wash up on the shores of Lake Michigan. There's been a couple of incidents. They found a male, a body of an unknown male by a pond or something up in that area. And it, they checked that out. That wasn't Jesse. Didn't somebody, uh, not too long ago, last year, I think, some family was up vacation and walking along the shore of the lake and came upon a body outside Chicago. They reported it and then someone notified us. And so we, we contacted the, the local police up there and they were going to send the body for DNA. The family who found, saw the body, who stumbled upon it, their, some of their family saw our posts on Facebook or something and they notified the family and they contacted us. And they said that the uh, they looked over Jesse's stuff and they said the clothing worn by the individual and so on didn't seem to match up with Jesse. We still don't know for certain that that necessarily eliminates the person because, you know, the clothing, there might have been a reason for a change of clothing, whatever. So we were talked to the police and we told them that we needed to know when they got some type of DNA recognition. We haven't heard anything, so... What is that like for you and your family to get information that there's a body that's been found at a lake and that maybe it might be Jesse's? I mean, you're going about your life as best you can, you know, and you're focusing on other things and trying to to bring some kind of normalcy to your life. You can't live your whole life, you know, based on on uh, on uh, on Jesse's not being here. We're we're always mindful of it, but we can't just stop and shut down our lives, so we have to go on. But then every once in a while, you know, something like that comes up. It's difficult because you want to know if Jesse's something 
has happened to him, we need to know. And it may not be pleasant, but but that's that's the reality of it. It's we we can't go on with this lack of knowledge. So we've got to know. Uh, but of course, if it's negative and if it's bad, then you're not really you you really don't want to hear it. But you you have to because it's you know it, that's the way it is. That's reality, and we have to face it. So yeah, it's it's a it creates turmoil. It's suddenly so you're you're kind of trying to keep Jesse's issue on the back burner and not let it interfere with doing your life and living your life. But something like that comes up and boom, all of a sudden it's right there in front of you and everything else kind of goes into the background. At the time of the publication of this podcast, the identity of the body that washed ashore has yet to be confirmed. We will, of course, keep you posted with updates as they are made available. You know, the second theory is that, well, maybe he jumped into the water. Again, the same problem. You know, you have a jumper. Well, why haven't they found you know, the body? This theory also relies on the fact that Jesse would have had an intention to harm himself. But according to his friends and family, he was excited about upcoming opportunities, including a trip he was planning to Puerto Rico, and he never showed any traditional signs of depression or suicidal ideation. At home, Jesse had the internship with the radio station, which he loved. He was sort of the, one of their special characters, and they were always having him do crazy things. And he uh, had uh, found out that in uh, he disappeared in November, but in January, the station had plans to make him a full-paid employee, full-time employee on their morning show. Also, he was working for a, a friend of his had asked him if he was interested in a job, and he said, sure. So they got him a, a regular job with a voiceover internet company. And then he, of course, he had his schooling and everything. So the police had kind of asked, well, do you think Jesse would have a, a reason not to come home or he'd have something else going on? And we told him, no, he, he had far too much in the works at home, all of this stuff going on. And he was very excited about it. And uh, he was anxious to get back home. He called and talked to my wife, I think the previous day, and he was telling her about Puerto Rico, and he was really excited about all that was going on and very enthusiastic. The third possibility being, did he meet with foul play? Police's position has been that there is no evidence for this, and understandably so, you know, it's very difficult to commit a crime like that and have there be no evidence whatsoever. But they didn't, I don't think they adequately, you know, they concluded very soon that Jesse had gone into the river and they just did not adequately explore, I think, in my opinion. Uh, well, what if Jesse had been headed in the opposite direction, headed back to the hotel? I find it kind of uh, interesting that the morning after he disappeared, he uh, was uh, was trash pickup in that area. So you would have had dumpsters that would have been emptied out. Supposing he uh, had met with some kind of foul play and he was injured or otherwise wound up in a dumpster, uh, or if there was evidence for what happened to him that wound up in a dumpster, well, that evidence would have been 
on its way to the landfill, the dump, what have you, that that morning before he was even known to be missing. He wasn't really uh, known to be missing until noon when he didn't appear for um, everyone to check out at the hotel. And the report wasn't made until the afternoon. To my knowledge, the police never you know, followed up uh, looking into like trying to search landfills or anything for potential evidence. Uh, they didn't search his hotel room until several days after when it had already been cleaned. I've got several witnesses who talk about uh, that there was a flyer for a party uh, being held that night, you know, a dance party, a rave, what have you. And Jesse was known to have been interested in that kind of work. He'd actually brought demo discs with him, uh, telling his classmates that he was hoping to, you know, hand them out while he was there, since Chicago is a pretty good radio market. This flyer, you know, no one actually saw it. That's that's the problem. You know, everyone just kind of heard, oh, somebody else saw this flyer to this party, but they never really searched. I don't think they searched the hotel quickly enough to see, well, if this flyer actually existed. They just said, well, we never found any evidence that there was a party. But the intriguing thing is that the demo discs that Jesse brought with him were not with uh, his belongings that were left behind in the hotel. He had those either with him or had uh, given them out previously, but they have never turned up. When I spoke to Donald, I asked him, which of the theories about what happened to Jesse do you believe? And this was his response. My feeling is that Jesse, uh, we were told that when he was going up there in the van, he was showing people these CDs, and they call them mixes. I guess they take music and create some sort of a presentation. I don't know. I'm not familiar with them. But anyway, he had these mixes, and he wanted to to take those to Chicago and try and get involved in the music scene. Uh, somebody said that they had these raves and that they would have DJs, and a DJ could make maybe $1,000 in one night. Uh, in his room, someone told us that there was a flyer, a little yellow piece of paper about a rave somewhere that he was interested in. And Unfortunately, with all the way things were handled, the room was cleaned out, and the police, by the time they got there, there was nothing there at all. So we talked to them about it, but they essentially said, well, there's... We have no evidence and we have no indication of where this might be, so there's nothing we can do with that. So, well, we both, my wife and I, think maybe that he might have been thinking about this type of thing and he might have left the hotel and gone out and uh, gone to a club or somewhere. Uh, One of the young ladies he was with up there told us he was going, that she went with him and he would go to clubs and he would go to radio stations and present his music, we think. Music industry has its dark side and there's ties to drugs and different things. And we're just afraid that he got into a situation that was not good. And Chicago has a tremendous crime problem and gangs and so forth. So we feel that he might have been a victim of Chicago's crime scene. And I mean, you know, beyond that, we have, until the police can give us something, we have, we have nothing to form opinions on. All of that information that we got, we got from talking to other people. The police gave us nothing. They had never given us anything other than the the river possibility. 
With the possibility of Jesse attending some kind of after-hours party or rave in Chicago amidst the unfamiliar darkness of the streets, it is possible that he may have fallen victim to foul play. If this is the case, there is little chance anyone will ever know what happened to Jesse because it's likely that much of the potential evidence is gone. And then the fourth possible explanation is that he uh, disappeared of his own free will. This one is uh, probably the only theory that I think you can fairly safely eliminate. Um, just because it is very difficult to just completely disappear. You know, Jesse was a legal adult. There's nothing illegal if, you know, he did, for whatever reason, want to disappear, start a new life. But the problem is, is the minute you want to, say, apply for a job or something, and you have to give your social security number, they're going to run that social. And when they do that, that is going to set off alarm bells because, you know, law enforcement, they're, they're going to want to know, okay, is this person really Jesse? Or is this the person who's killed Jesse and is attempting to use his identity? They're going to look into that, but as of now, you know, no one has attempted to use his social security number. And, you know, I've studied his bank records. He did not have very much money in the bank, certainly not enough to start a new life or to uh, buy a, a new identity and all that. Uh, not to mention he had a full-time job waiting for him at a radio station where he was an intern at that was going to start up. So there's just no real demonstrable reason for him to, to disappear of his own free will. So I think that's the only one of the four explanations that could, you know, be fairly safely eliminated. Has his cell phone or his bank account or any of that been touched since the night he went missing? As far as we know, that they've never been used. The police actually asked us to call and check on his cell phone because they apparently they have to go through paperwork and they have to maybe even get a warrant or something. And uh, they said if you call, that you can actually just ask them. And so we did. And at some point in time, we received a paper copy that showed uh, his cell phone usage. But uh, again, after the uh, meeting, uh, sometime, maybe a few minutes after Jesse left, his cell phone uh, quit pinging at that time. It uh, wasn't uh, active shortly after he left, and it hasn't been since. Apparently. He did have a credit card, I think a bank card, um, but nothing has apparently turned up on that. So these are the four theories that Brian discussed. One, that he fell into the river. Two, that he intentionally jumped into the river. Three, that he met with foul play. And four, that he left intentionally. I would end the theories there. But while doing research for this case, I came across another story, similar to Jesse's circumstantially. This story made me wonder if it was possible that Jesse's body is still in the hotel, trapped somewhere and just never found. It was the story of Kanika Jenkins, the 19-year-old who, just a few months ago in September, went missing from Chicago for less than a day. Her body was eventually found in the freezer of the Crown Plaza Chicago O'Hare Hotel and Conference Center. 
Surveillance footage surfaced of her stumbling through the hotel and into the freezer where she became trapped and eventually died from hypothermia, according to autopsy reports. I was also reminded of the more disturbing case of Elisa Lamb, the 21-year-old Canadian college student who disappeared in 2013 from the Cecil Hotel located in Los Angeles, California. Despite the massive search effort by authorities and volunteers of the surrounding area, there was no sign of Lamb. It would be more than two weeks before authorities would discover Lamb's body in the hotel water tank after guests complained of low pressure and discolored liquid. I only bring these up because both of these cases highlight the possibility of Jesse actually having gotten stuck somewhere within the hotel, and with so much effort focused on the river, that not much attention was given to the hotel itself. Granted, I realize that in both of the examples I presented, the bodies were recovered relatively quickly, and that if Jesse's body had spent months in the hotel, that surely someone would have smelled it or discovered it by now. Even though this seems unlikely, it isn't more or less unlikely than any of the other theories regarding Jesse's disappearance. So, considering all of these possibilities, what did happen to Jesse Ross? Based on your research then, is it safe to assume that you believe that Jesse did not fall into the river? This is where it gets um, gets really difficult. You know, I've in my film and you know in general terms, I try to um, avoid making conclusions. I believe in Occam's razor, the the idea that the the simplest explanation uh, tends to be the correct one. And you know, the simplest explanation is is that you know Jesse, whether by accident or by intent, went into the Chicago River and just you know, for whatever reason has not been found. You know, there have certainly been cases where people have disappeared and, you know, 40 years later, their car turns up in a lake. So those things, you know, definitely do happen. So I hate to say the word pl most plausible, but it's definitely the simplest explanation and therefore has to be one that's um, one must give the most weight. Again, they um, there are just there are real problems with that with uh, making that theory uh, acceptable. I've pointed out that, you know, even if they were to find Jesse in the river tomorrow, ab I mean, short of, not to be gruesome, but short of finding, you know, a bullet hole in his skull, it's not going to answer the question of how he got into that river. You know, did he fall? Did he jump? Was he pushed? You know, at this point, so much time has elapsed that even finding his remains um, doesn't really explain how they came to be there. Today, Jesse Warren Ross would be 30 years old. Jesse has red hair, blue eyes, and wore glasses. He was last seen on November 21st, 2006, and he was wearing a white t-shirt, a green jacket, blue jeans, and black sneakers. 
If you have any information regarding the disappearance of Jesse Ross, and I mean any information, including pictures or sightings from the weekend of the conference, or you spoke to him during the conference and you're just making that connection now, please contact the Chicago PD, or you can email us directly at thinairpodcast at gmail.com, and we'll pass the information directly to the family and their PI for immediate investigation. I'd like to thank Donald Ross and Brian Rose for speaking to me. Brian Rose's documentary film, When I Last Saw Jesse, has an anticipated scheduled release for early 2018. You can check out his website at jesserossfilm.squarespace.com or you can visit his Facebook page at facebook.com slash jesserossfilm. I'd also like to thank our sponsor, HelloFresh, again for their support of our show. I'd like to thank our assistant producer, Nate Halda, for all his work, and of course, our executive producers who support our show via Patreon. They are Bridger Mobley, Hal Valgus, Wendy Gabbery, Susan Anderson, Nicole Goodwin, Jack and Christy Lupian, Drusilla Dents, Rebecca Hardberger, Elle McManus, Heather Kedu, Elizabeth Farmer, Bonnie Mortensen, Anthony Loper, and Mistea Pena. Thank you so much for your support. Music today was provided by Blue Dot Sessions. To check them out, head on over to sessions.blue. We'll be back with a new missing persons case in two weeks.